0: This is a Reconstructionist radio production. Please visit calcedon.edu forward slash store to download this book or purchase a physical copy. Intellectual Schizophrenia Culture, Crisis and Education by Roussous J. Rushdoney Copyright 1961 Dorothy Rushdoney and the Rushtuni Irrevocable Trust Calcedon, Ross House Books Chapter 1 the school, and the whole person. Contemporary educational theorists have much to say about educating the whole child and dealing with the total needs of the person. Theoretically, it seems a most desirable process, but, on reflection, both the goal and the process appear to have very dangerous implications. Consider, for example, this comment by Helmut Schuck. Last year I had a talk with the director of teacher education in one of our universities. This jovial gentleman confided his greatest worry to me, quote, You know, our graduates, after four years of indoctrination in our programme, go out from here with pretty much the same attitudes they had when they came as freshmen. I really think we ought to get permission to electroshock them, end quote, end quote. While too much cannot be read into this observation, neither can it be bypassed. The remark, show quotes, is after all a common one. Its equivalent heard on many a college campus. Whether stated facetiously or with an irritable weariness, it does betray a concept of education which is rarely recognised as basic to the modern mind. To understand modern educational theory, it is important to recognise the Impact of John Locke. Locke's influence was twofold, both as an educational theorist and as the founder of modern psychology, through which he has had a continuing influence. It was important to Locke, as a zealous champion of the Enlightenment and a forerunner of empiricism, to eliminate the effect of the past and wipe out any concept of the mind that would leave in it ideas or any stock of ideas to the individual. Accordingly, he gave to the Enlightenment its ideal weapon against God and the past, the concept of the mind as a blank piece of white paper. Although not entirely new, the idea received its influential formulation from Locke. The mind begins life without any burden from the past. It is like a white paper without any markings. All its ideas are empirically aroused. The mind is free and nothing can exist in it that is not first in the senses. Thus, the mind cannot create ideas, they are received impressions, then compounded and translated. The mind is thus essentially passive and receptive, although Locke at times speaks of it, contradictorily, as active and free. The essential passivity of the mind is apparent in that no true explanation of the self was possible for Locke. It was simply an, quote, internal, infallible perception that we are, end quote, an unexplained and soon eroded concept in later thinking of the Enlightenment. The marvels of this theory for educators of the Enlightenment are immediately apparent. Man was able to remake man, and the educator to play the role of a god, the hated and despised past could be cancelled out and man be given, in effect, a new inheritance. No modern goal in education is understandable except in terms of this hope of the Enlightenment. Education thus involved a war against the past and two of the most monstrous aspects of man's past were Calvinism and scholasticism against which all men of intellect must make war. For the Enlightenment, education became a veritable mania, a magical concept which was the cure-all for all problems, social, ethical, and economic. Education would produce universal brotherhood and a paradise on earth, freedom and happiness for all. Pestalozzi translated much of this into practice with his educational techniques and methods. Lessing, Herder, and others attacked patriotism in the name of cosmopolitanism. All lesser divisions than the world were frowned upon. A thing to be true had to be universal and valid for all men, and aristocratic concepts such as predestination was untenable. Authority and tradition were inevitably wrong, and rebellion against them the duty of intelligence. Accordingly, The static, as universal, and the rational, as against the realistic, were exalted and made basic to all human activity and philosophy. In terms of this, the Enlightenment developed also the concept of necessary ideas, things necessary in and of themselves. Not every facet of the Enlightenment is of importance to us in this context. The concept of the mind is a clean tablet, was very quickly exploded as a psychological reality, but it remained as an ideal. It became the ideal concept undergirding the idea of revolution. History was to be wiped out by revolution, a clean a clean tablet affected, and history begun anew. This concept dominated all thinking in the French Revolution. And extended itself to the point of beginning again in the reckoning of time. It was basic to the thinking of the anarchists, Marxists, such as Lenin and others, and still underwrites all revolutionary expectancy and post-revolutionary cynicism. It has been basic to all utopian thinking. Again, it has provided the ideal for scientific thinking, the true scientist ostensibly wipes his mind free of all preconceptions and approaches his subject with a clean tablet mind, ready to see and interpret the facts in and of themselves. This scientific attitude is one of the great myths of modern times. That the scientist actually approaches his subject with a variety of axioms and thought and pre-theoretical and religious presuppositions Herman Deweyward and Cornelius Van Til have amply shown his clean tablet mind is actually free only of the attitudes the Enlightenment rebelled against, preconceptions being identified with Calvinism and scholasticism. Instrumentalism is another expression of the same basic concept and assumes that it alone possesses the ability to attain true knowledge and because it alone is ostensibly free of preconceived ideas in approaching factuality. This is, again, a mythical faith and an impossibility. The instrumentalist also is guilty of extensive and basically religious presuppositions which provide the unconscious axioms of all his thinking. But, more pertinent to our concern, the clean tablet concept has become the educational ideal True education involves a ruthless wiping of the slate, cleaning it of all roots in the past and of all ideas and opinions not derived from the educational process. Indeed, some professors self-consciously and conscientiously employ a kind of shock therapy designed to jolt the student out of all preconceptions, wean him from the past, home, nation and religion, in order that the student can now truly pursue knowledge. The electroshock therapy idea is thus a fitting image for the clean tablet concept of education and it is no wonder that more than one educator has ruefully considered it. As a result, the characteristic pattern of modern education becomes understandable as does also the hostility of many people to education. Education, in aiming at a clean tablet as the first step towards true education, is inevitably productive of a radical rootlessness in the intelligentsia, and this, in the small town and rural areas where roots are often deepest, is strongly resented. The young man who went off to school with deep roots returns contemptuous of roots. The intellectual refuses to acknowledge the validity of the simplest conclusion unless it has been tested and established by his own processes. Accordingly, As long as there is any cultural vitality, there will be a strong resentment against such education. Only when such education has completely eroded all the cultural watersheds will the resentment disappear, only to give way to the deluge. Indeed, the resistance of many students to contemporary education is sometimes an indication of mental and cultural health. Such education is an unceasing war of attrition on all cultures and brooks no terms, demanding unconditional surrender for purposes of annihilation. It has implicit in it a tremendous pride. We are the people. Wisdom was born with us and, if we are not careful, may die with us. Accordingly, while compelled by its own research to grant that the home and the community Are essential to the mental health of the whole man, the home, community, and church are reduced to a non cultural level in every intellectual way possible, being limited to a basically emotional influence and none other. In all matters of mind, the initiative must lie with education and the scientific thinker. Such an approach is destructive, however, of every cultural agency, including the home. Again, culture is never the product of the clean tablet mind or of mind in isolation but of the whole man who has now been rendered schizophrenic and sterile by this educational concept. The erosion of the cultural agencies was furthered by the concept of evolution in terms of very popular and influential developments of this concept the family, religion, and all smaller societal forms were relatively primitive forms in human evolution the culminating form of man's organized life being the cosmopolitan and ultimately world state the more primitive forms of organization had to be self-consciously outgrown at best they were to survive as subsidiary agencies of the state consider for example the opinion very influential in the days of Charles le Tornon General Secretary of the Anthropological Society of Paris and Professor of Anthropology. But this new collectivity will in no way be copied from the primitive clan. Whether it be called state, district, canton or commune, its government will at once be despotic and liberal. It will repress everything that would be calculated to injure the community. But in everything else, it will endeavor to leave the most complete independence to individuals. Our actual family circle is most often imperfect, so few families can give, or know how to give, a healthy, physical, moral and intellectual education to the child, that in this domain large encroachments of the state, whether small or great, are probable, even desirable. There is, in fact, a great social interest before which the pretended rights of families must be effaced. In order to prosper and live, it is necessary that the ethnic or social unit should incessantly produce a sufficient number of individuals well endowed in body, heart and mind. Before this primordial need, all prejudices must yield, all egoistic interests must bend. But the family and marriage are closely connected, the former cannot be modified so long as the latter remains unchanged. If the legal ties of the family are stretched, while social ties are drawn closer, marriage will have the same fortune. For a long time, more or less silently, a slow work of disintegration has begun, and we see it accentuated every day. End quote. Such thinking was very far from extreme. Indeed, one of the amazing facts of modern times is that the corrosive effects of evolutionary thinking on modern culture, deadly as they have been, have not been totally destructive of freedom and culture. The evolutionary concept became the vehicle of every form of cultural hostility and antinomianism. As has been indicated of late, the home and other community groups have received a measure of rehabilitation in educational circles but only in that they are essential to the emotional health of the individual. They cannot presume to extend their scope beyond that. Man, as thinker, must be cosmopolitan. His true home must be the one world, and his family, humanity. Lesser loyalties are unhealthy and sickly loyalties if they are not outgrown. Another important aspect of this clean tablet concept of education is that it is destructive of the very idea of education, in that it is reduced to conditioning. The mind is regarded as essentially passive, and hence best educated in terms of conditioning. Pavlov's experiment with the conditioning of dogs has not been fully accepted by contemporary educators. But Pavlov shared in common with educators certain concepts concerning the mind as essentially passive and susceptible to conditioning. The word educate, derived from the Latin e, eh? out, duco, lead, means to bring out abilities and talents in the person, and thus develop him in terms of himself. This too is the biblical concept, in part. As Caelan Delich translated Proverbs two, six quote, give to the child instruction conformably to his way, so he will not, when he becomes old, Apart from it, end quote. but the clean tablet concept wants to do no such thing. It is not concerned with education, but radical recreation of the person beyond anything envisaged by religion. It has a radically messianic and religious program, aiming at the recreation of man and his total culture. And yet, precisely because of its schizophrenic nature and its rootlessness it is unable to create culture the total contribution of the university for example to modern culture is very limited and in spite of itself against its own principles its single greatest contribution has perhaps been the underlying work behind the atom bomb a fitting symbol of its educational theory by contrast let us examine briefly one aspect of the education one aspect of the education against which the Enlightenment rebelled, Calvinistic or reformed education, as manifested in the Pilgrims and Puritanism. Contemporaneously with the Enlightenment The Puritans were not past-bound, in that they did not look back to any past state, but sought, rather, to create a new order. They were, however, past-bound from the viewpoint of the Enlightenment, in that they held to the infallible word, the once-for-all, and full revelation of the Bible. They looked to the future, but refused to be chained to it. Thus, the communism of the pilgrims was quickly dropped when it failed. But, most important of all for our concern, education was a major interest, but on radically different presuppositions. New light was yet to break forth from the infallible word. New developments of society in terms of the fundamental faith were to be manifested. Basic to education were two religious concepts, the covenant and confirmation. Confirmation, a common Christian practice, had stronger roots often in other groups, but the covenant concept was strongest among Calvinists and far more important in terms of education. The theological aspects of the doctrine of the covenant are not our concern here, although they do have extensive sociological implications. But two aspects of the covenant immediately concern us. The covenant of grace was a covenant of life, and with promise. Man's very hope in terms of fulfilment and enjoyment, in terms of participation in the richness of life and community, was in terms of the covenant. Was in terms of the covenant. Education was thus inevitably a covenantal act, an incorporation of the person into the life of a rich and vital body, an indoctrination into its past, and a participation in its present and future life and power. The covenant, however, was not static. It was a covenant with promise, both for this life and the life to come. In terms of this life, for example, it looked to the beating of swords into plowshares, the earth filled with, quote, the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea, end quote, Isaiah 11:9, And the time when life expectancy will be such that, quote, the child shall die in a hundred years old, but the sinner being an a hundred years old shall be accursed, and they shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall not labor in vain nor bring forth for trouble, for they are the seed of the blessed of the Lord and their offspring with them. End quote. Isaiah sixty five twenty twenty one twenty three. This was believed to be the promise of an absolute God who cannot lie. It was taught, for example, in the last century at Princeton by the great Joseph Addison Alexander. Covenant theology was a doctrine of salvation, a plan of conduct and a philosophy of history as well as the foundation of education. Thus, education was an inevitable concern and it was seen not as a break with the community and the separation of the intellectual from the peasant, but an aspect of the image mandate within the framework of the covenant. Education, as an aspect of the covenantal life could not see itself as called to foster rootlessness, but to implement the covenant's development of its life and promises. It did not function to sever home times, for example, but to confirm them, in that work worked to develop more fully man's knowledge, righteousness, holiness and dominion in terms of every aspect of life. It was thus concerned with the development of godly scholarship and godly youth who would also be godly sons and daughters now and husbands, wives and parents tomorrow. Confirmation was full adoption into the inheritance from the past and the promises of the future. Emancipation was into the forms of culture and life and not from them. Of course, the state was but one. Cosmopolitanism was not an ideal. Rather, it was a major sin, in that it involved the offence of the Tower of Babel, a commonality in which the covenant of grace was destroyed, in favour of an indifference to good and evil, a prescription of character and merit, in favour of wickedness and sloth, and a rebellion against the primacy of faith, in favour of a meaningless and dangerous unity. It was a concept they opposed religiously, and hence the Westminster Confession did not hesitate, together with the Reformers, to identify the Church of Rome with the Whore of Babylon and the Papacy with the Man of Sin. They opposed it also politically, and the lingering elements of Puritanism in the United States today are usually the areas of hostility to internationalism and the United Nations. Thus, between the two concepts of education, the Calvinistic and that of the Enlightenment, and contemporary thought, there can be no compromise. They are in hopeless contradiction. The modern concept, with its cosmopolitanism and its clean-tablet ideal, is erosive and destructive of all aspects of culture, except the monolithic state, which is then the ostensible creator and patron of culture. When it speaks of the whole child, it speaks of a passive creature who is to be molded by statist education for a concept of the good life, radically divorced from God and from all transcendental standards. The goal of such education will only be reached when man ceases to be man. This being an impossibility, the only outcome of such education can be the increasing resistance of the child to its radical implications. Modern education is thus statist education, and the state is made the all-embracing institution of which All other institutions are but facets. The state and the person, government and individual, become thus the two realities of such a world view. Both demand freedom and power for themselves. The state recognizes no law beyond itself and the individual insists on his own autonomy and ultimacy. But the child of the state, being a man without faith, has no vital principle of resistance and thus even in his rebellion, is statist. Every philosophy of autonomous man from the Greeks to the present has foundered on the problem of the one and the many, universality and particularity. If the one be affirmed as the ultimate reality, the individuals are swallowed up in the whole. If the many be affirmed, then reality is lost in endless particularity and individuality, and no binding concept has any reality. Thus, the one and the many are in perpetual tension. The individual and the state, for example, can only each affirm themselves at the expense of the other. Against this, the consistent Christian philosophy, as developed by Calvinistic thinkers such as Kuiper, Bavink, and Cornelius van Til, by beginning with the biblical revelation and the ontological trinity, begins thereby with the equal ultimacy and the fundamental congeniality of the one and the many in the Trinity, three persons, one God. The concept of the covenant furthers this unity in that the self-realization of the individual is the advantage of all and is advanced by and integral with the self-realization of others. In the modern conception, the fulfillment and self-realization of the individual are at the expense of others and may involve their sacrifice. For the Orthodox Christian, self-realization, apart from the covenant, is an impossibility and it involves life in an organism, the true body of Christ. This latter concept, the body of Christ, asserts emphatically in all its biblical statements that individuality is not monotonous repetition, but the fulfillment of varying functions and callings as individuals who are yet part of a common whole. The service of the body requires the fulfilment of the individual. The eye must fulfil itself as an eye that the entire body as well may prosper. Covenantal education is thus education which is not at odds with itself and the nature of man. It has been accused of being no more than, quote, mere indoctrination, end quote. But indoctrination is, after all, no more than teaching in terms of principles and the teaching of principles. Carnival education is that, and much more. But it is definitely not conditioning, nor can it be, for it holds man to be not a passive and blank object, nor a creature of the state, but God's vicegerent, created in His image and called upon to establish dominion over all creation and over himself. This calling, with its responsibilities and consequences, no electroshock concept of education can alter
1: and his kingdom.